6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of 2 Chronicles, chapters 1 through 4. Solomon sent to Hiram the king of Tyre, saying, As thou didst deal with David my father, and didst send him cedars to build him a house to dwell in, even so deal with me. Hiram the king of Tyre, a key guy, a very close friend of David's, and he also becomes a very close friend of Solomon, and they become partners in worldwide commerce. Hiram entered into an alliance, assisted David in building his palace. By sending him skilled, he had all kinds of skilled workmen in all kinds, all kinds of special skills. Uh, not just, the, not just, but he also was a major source of the lumber, cedar trees and, and fir trees. So after the death of David, it was not surprising that he entered into a favorable relationship with Solomon, and assisted him in building the temple. So that's all very straightforward. But he also ends up partnering. Sol Solomon had a, a seaport down in Ezion Geber, down at the uh, 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 at the. Gulf of Aqaba, and uh, uh, they, that gave Hiram, king of Tyre, access to a whole, another whole uh, avenue of trade. Verse 4 of 2 Chronicles 2, Behold, I build a house to the name of the Lord my God, to dedicate it to him, and to burn before him sweet incense, and for the continual showbread, and for the burnt offerings, morning and evening, on the Sabbaths, and on the new moons, and on the solemn feasts of the Lord our God. This is an ordinance forever to Israel. That ordinance will be kept in the millennium. The only time the temple in the millennium is open is on Shabbat and the new moons. And the house which I build is great, for the great is our God above all gods. But who is able to build him a house, seeing that heaven and, and heaven of heavens cannot contain him? Who am I then that I should build him a house, save only to burn sacrifice before him? Send me now therefore a man cunning to work in gold and in silver and in brass, and in iron, and in purple, and in crimson, and blue, that can skill to grave with cunning men that are with me in Judah and in Jerusalem, whom David my father did provide. Send me also cedar trees, fir trees, and algum trees out of Lebanon, for I know that thy servants can skill to cut timber in Lebanon, and behold, my servant shall be with thy servants, even to prepare me timber in abundance, for the house which I'm about to build shall be wonderfully great. And behold, I will give to thy servants, the hewers that cut timber, 20,000 measures of beaten wheat, and 20,000 measures of barley, and 20,000 baths of wine, and 20,000 baths of oil. Then Hiram the king of Tyre answered in writing, which he sent to Solomon, Because the Lord hath loved his people, he hath made thee king over them. Hiram said, Moreover, blessed be the Lord God of Israel that made heaven and earth, who hath given to David the king a wise son, endued with prudence and understanding, that he might build a house for the Lord and a house for his kingdom. And now I have sent a cunning man endued with understanding of Hiram, my father's. This is the son of a woman to be uh, of the daughters of Dan. And his father was a man of Tyre, skillful to work in gold and in silver and brass and iron and stone and timber and purple and blue and fine linen and crimson. And also to grave any manner of graving. 
and to find out every device which shall be put to him with the, thy cunning men and with the cunning men of my lord David thy father. Now, this guy that was sent is uh, Huram Abi. Uh, it's a, he's a half-Israelite. Uh, his mother was from the tribe of Dan. Yet, according to 1 Kings 7, verse 14, it says the mother was a widow from the tribe of Naphtali. Now, if you compare these two, some, what I've spared you, by the way, going through all these lists, the commentators are full of trying to reconcile what appear to be discrepancies, the names spelled a little differently and all this. I won't, we didn't waste any time on that. But here's an example of something I wanted to highlight. Uh, there's apparently a discrepancy between 1 Kings 7 and here, where on the one hand is this, as the mother of this, this specialist that, that Hiram sent down, has a name similar to his in a sense, um, is it from the tribe of Dan or Naphtali? And this, I think, is a warning flag to all of us. Because, it, you see, his mother was from the tribe of Dan. We know that. But in 1 Kings 7, it says she was from the tribe of Naphtali, but Naphtali is being used as a geographic reference. You follow me? And there's a lot of confusion, and a lot of this is going to come up later in the book of Chronicles, when you speak of someone that comes from a region, Ephraim or something, you generally mean the geography of the tribal area as was allocated under Joshua. Don't presume that those tribal um, identities were preserved. They commingled. Okay? Um, if I say to you that, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I, I came from California, that you, you understand that to be a geographic reference. But if the word California was also the name of the tribe that originally inherited, you wouldn't be sure if I, was I ethnically derived from that tribe or did I just come from that geography. All the names of the 12 tribes, Benjamin, Simeon, Naphtali, Ephraim, are geographic areas that were assigned to those tribes originally. There are no 10 lost tribes. There are a lot of people who lived in a lot of those places that are lost for a lot of reasons. And we'll get into that, because we know there were two tribes in the south, Benjamin and Judah, but all the Levites, because they went into idolatry, the ones that were faithful, went south. So in the south, you've got those, you've got at least three, you've got Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. So if you've got, you don't have ten lost tribes, you might have nine, but it's not that simple. And I, I, we'll get into all that later. Just be alert to the fact that there is an ambiguity that you want to be alert to when someone says they're from... Uh, they're from Dan, does that mean they're of the tribe of Dan, or they come from the region that is associated with Dan? There's a big difference. Okay, let's move on. Now, therefore, the uh, wheat, the barley, the oil, the wine, which my Lord hath spoken of him, let him send unto his servants. And we will cut the wood out of Lebanon as much as thou shalt need, and we will bring it to thee in floats by sea to Joppa, and thou shalt carry it up to Jerusalem. And Solomon numbered all the strangers that were in the land of Israel after the numbering wherewith David his father numbered them, and they were found in 150,000 and 3,600. And, uh, and he set threescore and 10,000 of them to be bearers of burdens, and fourscore thousand to be hewers in the mountain, and 3,600 overseers set the people at work. Okay, so we've got all that set up. Now we're in chapter 3, we're going to build the temple. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David, his father, in the place that David hath prepared, in the thrashing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Remember, we went through all that a couple of times ago. And he began to build on, in the second day of the second month, in the fourth year of his reign. 
That sort of surprised me. I thought he was enthusiastically following through the momentum that David had uh, started, but he spent four years getting his affairs in order. Well, maybe it's okay. Let's go on here. This would be about 966 B.C. By the chrono everybody has a slightly different chronology. I won't go through all, all that with you. But it's interesting that there's 480 years after the Exodus. That would put the, the Exodus then at 1446. So some people like to try to keep a perspective of that. That's at least one reckoning. We, just to re refresh your memory, remember there's Mount Zion, Mount of Olives, and between that there's a ridge system called Mount Moriah. Uh, Kedron Valley lies between Mount of Olives and, and Mount uh, and, and the Moriah Ridge, and the Teropian Valley between that ridge and Mount Zion. And there's a southern valley called the Hinnom Valley that is sort of a, a burning dump. That's where you get the term Kehinnom, which is a term of, of the lake that it's, it's an idiomatically linked to the, the ultimate burning pit. But in any case, um, Salem, the, the city of David, that he, the, he conquered the Jebusite place called Salem, made it his place. The thrashing floor of Aruna, which we went through, is, is uh, on a saddleback, not at the peak, but where there's a prevailing wind, typically from the west there. And then uh, Akidah, the, 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 the peak, is place labeled Golgoth in the New Testament period. Okay. Originally, in the days of Moses, we had the tabernacle, that portable structure that we spent a lot of time on in our earlier studies. We're now going to uh, indulge in what, could be, what is commonly called the first temple, Solomon's temple, the one that David designed and paid for, but we call it Solomon's temple. I don't want you to get confused because it will get destroyed in, 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 a, in, a, in a few centuries by Nebuchadnezzar when they take them into captivity. When they come back from that captivity under, in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, the temple is rebuilt, but very modestly. People that remembered, the few people that remembered that first temple wept because it just didn't compare. And we would call that temple the Zerubbabel temple, or, or uh, some people call it Nehemiah's temple, and some people might call it Zerubbabel's temple. Um, Herod, when the Romans take over that region, and they appoint an Edomite in charge by the name of Herod, who is not Jewish, he undertakes obviously at government expense, he undertakes to modernize, expand, renovate the second temple. He does it dramatically. He creates a huge, huge plateau there by putting retaining walls in. He more than doubles the size of the Temple Mount area. Uh, he remodels the temple. You and I would probably call that the third temple. It's so substantially beyond the, the means and the original Zerubbabel's temple, but that's not the way it's recorded in scholarship. They refer to the second temple as built by Zerubbabel and then simply refurbished and modernized by Herod, but the, the, that masks the extent to which it was modernized. But it's still called the second temple in your literature. There is a third temple coming. It's not built yet. Herod's temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. The third temple will be a temple that will be desecrated by the Antichrist. So it has a very dubious destiny. It is yet to be built. We know it will be built because Jesus, Paul, and John all make reference to it. But it too will be desecrated by this coming world leader and leads to Armageddon. When the Lord returns, he builds what some, many people call Ezekiel's temple because it's detailed in the last um, eight, eight chapters, nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel. From chapter 40 through 48 in Ezekiel 
gives you the specifications for what most scholars uh, infer is what we would call the millennial temple. So, so we don't get confused. The tabernacle, sometimes called the house of blood, see, in addition to the two tables of stone that Moses brought down from the hill, he also brought some engineering drawings. <laughs> and uh, the scriptures devote more space to the description of the tabernacle than any other single subject in the Bible. That should get our attention. And uh, the it had a structure, it had furniture, it had a priesthood, and it had special offerings. The offerings, of course, are detailed in the book of Leviticus. It, uh, it, it used brass, because, as it, it, that, which was a metal that could stay, sustain fire, so it speaks of judgment. Gold, of course, of deity. Silver of blood, it rested on silver sockets. It rests on the blood of Christ. And every detail, every specification, every, every detail tabernacle speaks directly of Jesus Christ. The silver was a silver redemption shekel. That's exactly what Jesus was betrayed for, for 30 pieces of silver. We go on and on. The tabernacle was 70. If you take a, a, a cubit to be a foot and a half so we can relate to it, visualize a, a linen fence 75 feet wide and 150 feet long. The perimeter is the length of Noah's Ark, by the way. But it has one door. Anybody that doesn't enter by the, that door is a thief and a robber. So this is, that gives you a frame of reference for cubit here. We'll try to do it to scale, roughly. Um, first, when you enter that gate, you come to a brazen altar. That's what Solomon went up to Gibeon to visit. The altar of sacrifice. Then there was a laver where they washed. Then there's the temple proper, this portable building made of gold, wooden planks covered with gold, set up in, 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 in vertical planks to be a, a portable building, in effect. And uh, we'll take a look at that a little more closely to get the refresher memory on the architecture. It had, of course, an entrance. As you walked into the first room, a rectangular room, on the left was the menorah, on the right was the table of showbread, and ahead of you was the golden altar, the altar of incense. It is in front of a curtain that separates you from the Holy of Holies. It is always associated with the Holy of Holies, and that causes confusion, because it's not in the Holy of Holies, it's right in front of it. Why is it not in the Holy of Holies? Because it had to be attended to three times a day to make sure it was, the incense kept burning. No one was allowed in the Holy of Holies ever except the high priest and he only once a year on Yom Kippur after great ceremonial preparation. But in the Holy of Holies, of course, you have two things. You have the Ark of the Covenant and you have the mercy seat. And uh, it is defined, strangely, by the place of the mercy seat. But in any case, obviously, they're together, and they're in there. So that's a quick picture. The holy place, the holy of holies. We have the menorah, table of showbread, golden altar, or the altar of incense, sometimes called. And, of course, you have the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. Okay. These five things, with the two things outside, the laver and the, the altar, are the seven primary appliances or furniture of the tabernacle. The temple... Uh, of course, is, is uh, we've gone through the preparation and so forth, uh, 183,000 workforce, 30,000 men, 10,000 per month, per shift, 70,000 carriers, 80,000 hewers. These are, th this, is a, this is a huge operation, and it took seven years. This is, uh, this, now this is the way Solomon's going to lay it out. It's very similar to the tabernacle. It's got the same architectural thing, except instead of one lampstand, there are 10 of them. Instead of one table of showbread, there's ten of them. Outside, you have lavers of bronze, not one, but ten of them. And, of course, you have what they call the Holocaust altar, the, the, burning, the altar burning 
uh, offerings. And uh, the molten sea, this huge thing. We're going to talk a little bit about the molten sea in a little bit. And then you have the inner court and the outer court, interestingly enough. Now it turns out that each one of these things has a relationship with you and I personally. Seven times in the scripture, it says you are the temple of God. Now that can be just an allegorical use of phrase, or it might be something far more profound. And I'm indebted to my wife, who really tracked this down, spent 20 years chasing down every reference that's related here. What is the mind? You're supposed to love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. So what is the difference in your heart and your soul and mind? What does that mean? Does the mind mean the brain? No, it's much more than that. She took every Greek and Hebrew word that relates to any of those things, spent 20 years tracking them down, actually went to the Rockefeller uh, Library in, in Jerusalem, etc., and her books, her trilogy of the, the root books are all about that, and not just historically, but how they represent our own etern internal architecture. As a computer uh, specialist, I was startled to realize that that describes, through her studies I began to realize, that describes the software architecture. The real you is software, not hardware. But what's the Most of us have no feeling for what's the architecture of software, has an architecture. And that's exactly what it is. And uh, the other thing, that there, there are two things in Solomon's temple that the tabernacle did not have. The porch is added. That's extremely profound. And I'll let you study her materials to get into that. And uh, there are also these personal storage uh, places around the outside. Uh, the priests stored their private things. And that's where they kept the personal idols. That's what needed cleaning out. And that's also with you and I. That's what some psychologists might call the subconscious where we tuck away all those things that wouldn't cumber. Um, oh, one other thing, there's two, there's two pillars, Yachin and Boaz. What are they all about? And uh, they're, they're, that's, a, that's part of the whole story. Seven times you're declared you are the temple of God, and there are the, there are the seven places. What is a heart, soul, spirit, and mind? What do those words mean? And they hold the key to our internal structure. And so I invite you to check out my wife's materials, I can tell you there's also a plan in our institute to have those materials involved in uh, for spiritual hygiene and, and personal walk uh, courses. And so uh, based on uh, my, my wife's discoveries. So I'll let you check that out on our website. Uh, Solomon's Temple has been modeled. Uh, many of the experts that have studied this, they all have slightly different perceptions of certain things. Um, almost every one of them that I get sent by some author, I show Nan and she points out where they're wrong about this or that because she's done her homework on this subject. But this at least gives you one impression of the storerooms on the outside there. There are the ten lavers and there is the wash basin, the laver with the twelve oxen modeled underneath it and of course the Holocaust altar. That's one rendering of it. And uh, now these things are things wherein Solomon was instructed for the building of the house of God. The length of cubits after the first measure was three score cubits, and the breadth twenty cubits. So these are just bigger, bigger, bigger. Now the porch that was in front of the house, the length of it was according to the breadth of the house, twenty cubits, and the height was a hundred and twenty, and he overlaid it with pure gold. So this is quite a structure. And the greater, uh, the greater house he sealed with fir tree, and which he overlaid with fine gold, and set thereon palm trees and chains. He garnished the house with precious stones for beauty, and the gold was the gold of Parvain. And he overlaid also the house, the beams, the posts, and the walls thereof, and the, door, the doors thereof with gold, and engraved cherubims on the walls. So once you were inside, this thing was overwhelming. It was all gold. 
all gold. And he made the most holy house, the length thereof, according to the breadth thereof, 20 cubits. The original tabernacle was 10. This is now, everything's double. Everything's bigger, see? 20 cubits. He overlaid it with fine gold anointing uh, to 600 talents. The weight, of the, the weight of the nails was 50 shekels of gold. And he overlaid the upper chambers with gold. And the most holy house, he made two cherubims of image work and overlaid them with gold. And the wings of the cherubims were 20 cubits long, and one wing of one cherub was five cubits reaching to the wall of the house, and the other wing was likewise five cubits reaching to the wing of the other cherub. So visualize these two winged creatures, huge. Between them stood the Ark of the Covenant. Don't confuse that with the two cherubim that are on the cover, on the, on the mercy seat. These huge uh, statuettes, if you will. The one wing of the other cherub was five cubits, seven and a half feet, in other words, reaching to the wall of the house, and the other wing was five cubits, also joined to the wing of the other cherub. So you've got seven plus seven, seven plus seven, so you've got, you know, 28-foot span all the way across, and right in the middle is the of Holy Holies is the, is the uh, Ark of the Covenant. The wings of these cherubim spread themselves over 20 cubits, and they stood on their feet and their faces inward. And I don't know if you can see that very well, but that's a... a computer construction of the, what it probably would look like. And there's a computer modeling thing going on here. And he made the veil of blue and purple and crimson and fine linen and wrought cherubs thereon. And he also made before the house two pillars of 30 and 5 cubits high. The chapter that was on the top of each of them was 5 cubits. So these are two pillars, 35 cubits high. That's, what's that, 100 feet? What's a foot and a half times 35? It's up there. Hmm? And he made changes in the oracle and put them on the heads of the pillars and made a hundred pomegranates and put them on the chains. And he reared up the pillars before the temple, one on the right hand and the other on the left, and called the name of that on the right hand, Yachin, and the name of that on the left, Boaz. They have names in his counsel and in his strength. And the, the, the names of those are extremely profound. They're descriptive of the architectural role they have in a software sense. Now, this is the model. And uh, it's our understanding from other sources that the pillars are there, but they don't hold anything up. Most people who make a model can't resist the idea, well, they must be holding up something. They apparently were there for other reasons, symbolic reasons. But it is what it is. There they are. That's one artist's guess as to what they probably looked like. Let's go to the furnishings. Moreover, he made an altar of brass, 20 cubits, the length thereof, 20 cubits, the breadth thereof, 10 cubits, the height thereof. That's 15 feet high. That's hard to get at. That's where you have to have a ramp and steps, whatever. And he made a molten sea of 10 cubits from brim to brim, round and compass, and 5 cubits in the height thereof, and a line of 30 cubits did compass it round about. This is in 2 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 2. It's literally the same as Second uh, uh, Kings 7.23, which you'll look at in a minute. The molten sea is the King James way. Molten meaning brass. It's, it's, it's cast. And a sea meaning a laver. It's just, molten sea doesn't rate it to us, but it's like a cast bowl. Okay? A bronze, huge bronze bowl. It's 10 cubits in diameter... And it's five cubits deep. The cubit's a foot and a half, so it's about seven and a half feet deep. It's intended to be a place that you could bathe in. 
And it's, it's supported by 12 oxen, is the way Solomon did it. But there's an interesting problem here. I can remember vividly when I was a kid in uh, high school. A friend of mine was a son of a Unitarian minister, so he knew his Bible, sort of. But he always made fun of me because I took the Bible seriously. He says, well, you think it's, you know, there are no errors in it? Absolutely. What about 1 Kings 7.23? He always hit that way. That was one of the things he'd throw up. Because it says that the circumference of this thing is 30 cubits. It's 10 cubits in diameter and 30 cubits. Well, any schoolboy knows that the circumference is not 3 times the diameter. It's pi times the diameter. 3.14159, whatever. Right? And uh, so it's an error. Not a big deal. But gee, Chuck, I thought that you said the Bible doesn't. There's a mistake. Well, I didn't have an answer for him in those days. But um, a rabbi pointed out something interesting to me. This is 1 Kings 7.23, the equivalent, the one I'll, I'll use it as my model here. I, uh, and there's the translation that we have in our English, but in the Hebrew, it's written, remember it goes from right to left, right? When the Masoretes copied a manuscript and there was something that they thought was a mistake, they didn't correct it. They marked it and put the correct thing in the margin. And uh, so the thing that was called, what apparent mistake, they called it kathiv. But the thing, the correction for it was a carry. And so you've got the word for the line about the thing, circumference is misspelled. There's a misspelling here. It's got an extra letter, a hey. Well, in, in Hebrew alphanumerics, there's two, two languages have, the letters have numerical values. Only two, by the way. Roman has value for a few of the letters, only a few. You can't, you don't, you don't use a whole Roman alphabet for Roman numerals. You only use six letters, which add up to 666, by the way. But anyway, the uh, Hebrew and the Greek have a numerical uh, value for every letter. And uh, that turns out to be a useful thing. Now, these are the values of the Hebrew alphabet, 1 through 900. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Chronicles. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music